Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope. We just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University of Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today's guest is Sharif Elmecki, my brother. I've been trying to get him on the show for a while. And alhamdulillah, he is here. We're going to be talking about uh, the nonprofit uh, he founded and runs as CEO, uh, as well as getting to the need uh, to get black males in the classroom. And what does that mean for the teaching and learning of black children? So for those who be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Audible, will you please introduce yourself, Sharif? Uh, uh, wa salam. Great to great to be here. Uh, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I am uh, I'm an educator, a son, a father, a husband, uh, a brother. You know, and uh, you know, I feel like I was raised by the community to eventually become, you know, an educator. Even though that, and I know we'll get into it, but that wasn't my first uh, even inkling about what I would be doing with my life. Um, but I'm so grateful. I feel blessed to uh, be able to be an educator, to um, you know, live and learn uh, in community with others. Um, and now, as you said, you know, we are uh, at the Center for Black Educator Development and our mission is to rebuild a national black teacher pipeline that's sustainable, highly effective and predictable um, that addresses educational inequities um, and racial um, and pursues uh, racial justice. So and that's what we're about right now, rebuilding the national black teacher pipeline. All right, that's all right. So I'm always curious as to how people got to where they are. What did you think you'll be doing when you were growing up and how did you find yourself in education? You know, I wasn't sure exactly what I, what I would do. People, a lot of people when I was, uh, you know, in first, second grade, they would say, oh, you're gonna be a veterinarian just because I was fascinated with you know science and and animals and zoology you know I was just like I would memorize you know tons and tons of information about you know fascinating animals and as I got older I realized that's not really what I wanted to do I didn't want to be a veterinarian uh, particularly not in in uh in West Philadelphia where you're probably you know um, just going to be neutering cats and dogs you know that certainly didn't um, interest me at all but what I would say is is uh, I knew I wanted to be involved in activism um, because that was just the type of community I grew up in, like being, you know, um, not only in community with others, but being responsible for your community, responsible for your brother and sister and fighting for social and racial justice. It was later um, that, you know, I added educational justice to that, uh, to that calculus and, and my uh, framework. But I would say my teachers and my family certainly planted the seeds of, of this, of education being a, a pathway because I just had a wonderful experience, particularly in that uh, pre-K to eighth grade, um, as well as, uh, you know, high school was different, uh, but, you know, pre-K to eighth grade, it was, you know, just amazing. Um, and uh, pre-K to sixth grade, I had all black teachers, you know, um, in all those years, I think I had one white teacher uh, in all of those, you know, in those, uh, seven, eight years, uh, from pre-K to, to, uh, eighth grade, you know, one. And so like my whole experience was around black teachers and, um, and brown teachers in middle school, 
but yeah, I, I think, you know, just when I think back, at it, you know, I appreciate it all the time and I'm still in touch with so many of those teachers. But once I became an educator and I really realized it's like once you become a parent, then you understand the sacrifices and the hard work and just the deep love and commitment of a parent, right? You know it and you appreciate it as a child, but it's when you become a parent, you really, it helps you connect the dots. And I feel the same way as an educator. I was just like every year, I become more and more impressed with what they accomplished um, when I was a youth in the in the 70s and the 80s. Mm. So you have an interesting background. I've seen the pictures that you have shared uh, on Twitter. And unlike any guest I've had, uh, as you mentioned, you attended black schools and you've spent some times overseas. Mm-hmm. How has your formative education informed the work you're doing now? Oh, man. Like one, social, racial, educational justice are, are combined. They're connected. You can't separate them. If you pursue racial justice without thinking about educational justice, you're going to fall flat on your face. And if you pursue, and we see this all the time, people who are in pursuit or say they're in pursuit of educational justice, but they want to ignore the racial uh, realities of this country, of the school systems, they're also, you're going to go astray, right? And so for me, for one, realizing how connected they are, I think also the deep involvement of community um, and what that means, I think also uh, in my formative years was just, you know, just entrenched and, and, you know, nurtured in a particular way that that was my entire, you know, framework. Even once I became a teacher, that was the, that was my orientation because that was how I was raised in a school. Um, and I also think just like the, you know, just the love for black people, um, you know, particularly the elementary school I went to, Nathamu Sasa, uh, which is an independent black school. Uh, we are still in touch with many of those uh, educators, with my class and schoolmates. And, you know, it was just so many of them, when I look at what they're doing now as middle-aged folks, they're, they've been on paths of commitment to communities, of serving the communities as, as doctors, as, uh, you know, uh, lawyers, as educators, you know, um, as chefs, like everything is seen. I'm just like, wow, everybody's serving the community in some kind of way. Um, and it's really fabulous. And I, I just think that the deep connection between home and school, there were no inconsistencies that mm. many children may face now, particularly black children um, in schools, how their parents and families and communities might feel about black people and black children and their capacity to learn, their capacity to achieve their uh, aspirations um, and their humanity may be a very different message that they get in, in schools and school systems. Um, and so I think that for one, the line between home and school was was blurred in a very, very positive way. Mm. Well, since you mentioned that, I want to throw this out there to you because there are a lot of schools in the country that will serve 100% black kids or mm-hmm. 70% black kids and those kids are not faring well yet mm-hmm. those those same kids can go to a Cheney they can go to a Tougaloo they can go to a Fisk a Jackson State and they'll take that 16 18 ACT score student and turn that student into a future doctor lawyer teacher social worker uh, business executive etc Mm-hmm. where are you seeing what do you think is the disconnect between what these hbcus are able to do with the same student that the k-12 system was not able to do 
yeah man shout out to to cheney tougaloo you know um and others you know uh, i got my master's in principal certification from cheney u the first hbcu and uh tougaloo uh a friend and sister naomi shelton speaks about tougaloo a lot i'm pretty sure that's where she went um but you know i i think one thing uh that hbcus and i think you know pre-k 12 needs to learn a lot about um, the orientation of HBCUs, uh, the environment that they create, uh, the culture that they try to support. The, uh, I think the first thing, you know, mindsets matter most, right? And so if you have a healthy mindset about Black children, if you look at them as full human beings with amazing potential and skills um, that just need to be nurtured and supported, um, you know, I think you're going to get different results, right? And I, I think too often in K-12 systems that our black youth go to, their full humanity isn't looked at um, as a real thing. Um, they're not looked at as one with the teacher. With the HBCU, they look at like, oh, I was in that same seat. Or I look at you, I see my son, I see my nephew, I see my neighbor, I see my cousin, right? And for I think other people, they may have actually teaching but have a level of contempt for if not the child, for the communities that they live in, for the families, right? You hear it and, you know, get your education and get out of here. Like, what are you actually saying to that child about their grandma, you know, about their, their parent, their household, their community, right? And so they, you know, in K-12 system, they get so many, and IHEs, right? Like they get so many uh, messages. And if we think that mindsets matter most, um, when we're uh, leading classrooms, when we're leading schools and, and leading uh, institutions of, of knowledge and learning, or at least what's supposed to be institutional knowledge and learning, um, you know, it, we can see, like we can connect the dots between uh, adults' mindsets and the policies that they create, the cultures that they, uh, you know, nurture and develop and the experiences of the children. But if I feel like I'm successful when you're successful, as a teacher to student, and I tell them, you're successful when I'm successful. That means we have this linked connection. We have this deeper connection, and we're saying like, hey, we're going together in this, um, in this, in this road. And you know what? I'm passing the baton to you. And I just think about how many people are in our K-12 system. They don't look at the baton being passed. They're like, no, nah, this baton ain't, I'm not passing to you. You're not even worthy of that baton. Um, this baton is for my my own child or my own community, right? Like I, I'm not from here. My only interaction with black black children or with black people is when I come to school. Imagine that. How many people, you know, white people who who work in schools, their only interaction, their only experience with black and brown people are in schools, within children. Um, and, uh, and that relationship of just this power dynamic, um, not one of learning, curiosity, respect, honor. Um, it very well may be like, you know, and I, we used to say that some, some folks parachute in and rocket ship out, you know, once that <laughs> bell rings. Uh, and I think that's, I think it manifests in how you lesson plan, how you develop your unit maps, how you ask and answer questions, how you build community and develop relationships all of that at the end of the day, you know, what do you think about the people that you're teaching and leading? Um, and if you're curious about how they experience your leadership. Mm. Well, some of us black folk parachute in and out too, uh, because no we don't no live, 
We don't live, you know, if you are a teacher in a Title I school, an academic coach, an interventionist, a principal, more than likely, you're not living in those communities where those kids are coming from, right? Because at this point, you're considered middle class. Uh, you're making a certain salary where you're living in a community where it, it may you may be other with other black people there, but these are other black people who are making a certain income and li- and and move in certain social circles that again our kids don't come from. Oh, one hundred percent. And and you know what? But I, I would say what I would add to the nuance I would add to that is that ain't their only relationships with black people. Right. And so, yes, they may not live down the street like, you know, like, you know, in yesteryear, but that ain't their own relationship They're They're probably going to some faith based institution. Mm -hmm. Odds are they're probably, you know, uh, going somewhere in proximity. Uh, They they have children that may resemble. And I agree, it's very dangerous to also fit into a a classist mentality. And we know that, you know, sometimes we learn best from our oppressors. And sometimes the gates that were created to keep us out, we say, hey, you know what? Just let me man the gate. You know, um, someone told me a long time ago, some people don't want to end white supremacy. They just want to improve their conditions within it. And mm-hmm. so we have to be very careful about, as educators, um, even as same race uh, educators, that we, again, mindsets matter most. How are we thinking about the children? Um, you know, a very instructive book was called Up South that I read a while ago. Uh, by a man named uh, Countryman, I think his, his last name is. And Up South was about how, uh, you know, it was about the experience of Philadelphia being Up South um, and how, you know, uh, people think that the North and South were so different. You know, one was so magnanimous, the other one was deeply racist. And, you know, he blurred the lines of like, no, it really is it? Look at these policies, look at the experience of Black people up North. And, you know, uh, one of my favorite Malcolm X quotes was, Everywhere is the deep south if it's south of the Canadian border. You know, the whole thing is the deep south. Uh, But, you know, this book Up South talks about how Black Philadelphians at times had this level of uh, elitism so that when they saw people coming up from, uh, you know, the great migration, they treated them the way that you see uh, folks treating uh, immigrants today. And regardless if they had a shared history, shared cultural background, they looked at them as outsiders as beneath them and they they treated them as such um, not only in communities but also uh, in schools and so we see that there is a you know um, if we're not careful uh, we can fall into those same traps uh, that many of us are are claiming that we're uh, trying to fight against. So you are the founder and CEO of the Center for Black Educator Development. Uh, what drives the work you're doing and what is your mission? Yes, our mission is to rebuild the National Black Teacher Pipeline. You know, like that is, you know, how do we, we're, you know, what we're constantly thinking about is how do we invite more uh, Black youth into the profession? How do we support them in becoming, you know, um, just amazing educators? Um, as Mary Church Terrell used to say, how we lift as we climb as educators. Um, and we do that through uh, basically four programming um, issues. So um, listen, I'll talk about like the pillars first. So we have these three pillars that we operate out of. So one, and they all support the Black Teacher Pipeline. One are pathways that I'll talk about in a minute. The other one is professional learning. So we provide professional learning experiences for really anybody who's in front of an educator, uh, in front of children, um, including other Black educators, including 
you know, we know that uh, retention is a big deal. Uh, if we're talking about recruitment, which a lot of people are really interested in, and less people are thinking about retention. And so we, you know, one of the things we do is we created a toolkit uh, with our partners at Pennsylvania Educator Diversity Consortium to how do you retain teachers of color? We can recruit, recruit, recruit all we want. If we're inviting people into a hostile environment, then why would they stay? Um, and then policy and advocacy. Um, you know, there's so many policies that need to be matched with grassroots efforts, uh, community-based efforts that should inform uh, what policies are um, and analyze and assess and, and uh, you know, be transparent about policies that have, have uh, you know, barred and created barriers for, uh, you know, black, brown, indigenous educators. So, um, but the pathway, if we think about the pathway to education, uh, we, we raised money uh, to have paid teacher apprenticeships as one of our mm. programs. So high school students, college students, matter of fact, we're recruiting right now. We have in-person and virtual. In-person is in Detroit, Camden, and Philadelphia. And virtual last year, we had uh, 16 states represented. We're hoping to, to grow that as well. Where high school and college youth who are interested in teaching, they're paid to teach first, second, and third graders. So again, that community-based learning that we experience all the time, right? Like how many teenagers did not support some youth uh, somebody younger than them with their homework or with some social or academic issue or even a peer, right? And so they're having that intergenerational approach to, to learning, that relationship of community-based learning, um, the relationship between teaching and learning in our communities uh, is absolutely critical. So we use the Freedom School model. Um, so we call that Freedom School Literacy Academy, which is both after school and during the summer. So you think out of school time. Uh, then we also have an elective. Uh, that students can take. So imagine taking a three-year sequential elective um, to kind of teaching one-on-one, but from a Black pedagogical framework, a Black historical lens, uh, where you're not just learning about white educational theorists, white behavior theorists, white child psychologists. You're learning about the contributions of Black educational theorists, Black behavior specialists. You know, what did Dr. Carter G. Woodson say about teaching and learning? What did Lucy Craft Laney and Nanny Helen Burroughs say about leading classrooms and leading schools, right? So, you know, so many of our youth learn about Piaget and Horace Mann and Dewey and B.F. Skinner, um, and they have no clue about what black people have said about teaching and learning. And so that's part of like what they learn through this elective. So you imagine a student, high school student who takes an elective in their high school in a partnering high school and then they also have a, a job, a paid uh, clinical experience after school and in the summer. And then coupled with those two is our Black Teacher Pipeline Fellowship, where high school students who are committing to teaching, uh, who know that that's a, what they wanna do in a career, we have a partnership with the United Negro College Fund where these students will get applied to be uh, BTP, Black Teacher Pipeline Fellows. When they get last dollar scholarships, as well as some type of retention bonus once they start teaching. Um, you know, so those are like, you know, we're really trying to create an ecosystem and an environment uh, where not only have they learned, but they had early exposure and clinical experiences uh, that allow them to, uh, you know, pursue, investigate and, and support the, the learning. But they also see like, wow, I helped this first grader with their literacy. I saw a difference, right? And they do a pre and a post and they see well, I did that. Like, yes, you did that. That's the impact that you can have um, all the time. So 
that's what that's what we're up to building a black teacher pipeline but we look at youth as part of the solution we're not just thinking in a room and in an ivory tower thing oh this is what needs to happen we actually invite the youth into solving um the issue and one of the things that they came up with was uh this campaign hashtag we need black teachers um that's a high school campaign that we've been supporting since uh september 9th and they said like we want something straightforward what they call a uh, straight shot, no chaser. We need black teachers is the hashtag that they've been really promoting and we've been helping them to amplify it. Um, this past uh, week, we uh, did another iteration of the campaign with that coincided with uh, Teacher Appreciation Week. Um, thank a black teacher, hashtag, um, hashtag we need black teachers. And it was really well received. So it's great to see high school students launch some campaign and people rallying around. I think last week there were, you know, a million and a half impressions um, across the, the, the platform. So it's been really great to watch youth embrace this issue um, and this challenge uh, wholeheartedly. And, you know, with the, with the dope leadership that they, you know, they possess, they just need room and space, you know, and sometimes a platform, but they, they have brilliant ideas, man. Mm. So recently we saw you on CBS evening news look at that just mm. out here balling out <laughs> uh what was that experience like and what don't people get about the work you're doing yeah you know i i think the one the best part about that i think was one uh that they included some of our apprentices you know um two young black men who were who are involved in our programming and are now working on leading classrooms, right? And so to me, that was like my favorite part that, you know, we want to make sure that we are, no matter where we're positions we are, that we're, we have youth who are next to us and in front of us. So we're talking about their experience. We're sharing like their belief, their orientation, what they've learned um, and what they're contributing. So that was my favorite, um, you know, favorite part. So we were just really grateful um, that they were able to, you know, tell a little bit of the, you know, the story. Um, I think one of the things that people uh, misunderstand about our work, you know, as I mentioned a couple of times, like, you know, we're about building a national black teacher pipeline and supporting the ecosystems that will support um, a pipeline instead of undermining it. And many people reach out because they think we have black teachers in our back pockets, right? And they're less interested in building a pipeline. They're more or less interested in really short term. Well, I got a vacancy next week and can you fill it? And I tell them like, you know, that's not, the work that we're doing, you know, we're not headhunters. We're not, you know, uh, you know, just finding black teachers to send them to your district. We also want to know what is your school? What is your school like? Is it an ecosystem? When Dr. King talked about integration, he said, I, I fear I'm integrating my people into a burning house. Sometimes I fear some of these people who are reaching out, maybe trying to integrate black teachers in a burning schoolhouse. And so we have to recognize that, like what we're interested in is building a 12 year pipeline, a black teacher pipeline that, that supports high school students, college students, as well as uh, their first four years of teaching, right? That's a 12 year black teacher pipeline that needs people's investment and commitment. In addition, the policy and advocacy, the professional learning um, that occurs that will support that new black teacher or you know, teacher in general, but particularly, you know, we're talking right now of black teachers, um, be successful because we know that many black teachers, they may leave, the attrition may be based on 
the macroaggressions that they experience from colleagues and supervisors, the conditions that they're placed in, the, uh, the under-resourced schools that more people of color end up teaching in than not, right? And so those are all the things that also have to you know, be addressed so that when, as we're recruiting, as we're building this black teacher pipeline, somebody, you know, we're not drilling holes in it, um, you know, at the same time, making it, uh, you know, uh, unwieldy and, and superbly leaky. Mm. I was just thinking about some of you speak, speaking because let's say, not that we haven't been real, but let's get real right here. Mm. Okay. When you're talking to someone about becoming a teacher and I love the programs you're, you're doing. I love watching that video. I've been to your website and you're talking to someone who may come from an under an economically underdeveloped community. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Hey, I want you to, you know, be a teacher and knowing what that salary is going to be like. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is that conversation like? Because if you're coming from, from that area, if you're going to college, you could be thinking, I need dollar dollar bill, y'all. You know, I need mm-hmm. to, I need to make this money. But knowing mm-hmm. that they're not going to make that money, what is that conversation like? Really impressing upon them the need for them to do so. Yeah, and I think this is why you know um, what I would say is is most situations have multiple layers to it. Right, multiple layers. So yes, uh, the salary piece is something that's very important, and we believe that we can't do this alone, right? And you know, and we can't do everything at the same time. We can't do it alone, and we can't do everything. And so, for us, a big part of of like policy and advocacy is really partnering with other folks who are specifically doing something. So, can't boil the ocean, but if we're all on a stove, and my pot is boiling this very specific thing, and somebody else is like the national, uh, the teacher salary project, teachersalaryproject.org, they're working very specifically on promoting, supporting, championing higher teacher salaries across the country, right? And so we're advocating for that, but we're doing that mainly through a partnership with them, right? You know, we're also, we work with UNCF. So we're like, hey, salaries aren't fantastic, um, but also let's look at what part of the country we're talking about. Right, because salaries in, you know, uh, Philly and New York and New Jersey may be very different than salaries in Mississippi, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Right, and so sometimes it's when it's just done by average and nationally, it may hide some of the story. So we really push uh, students to look a little bit deeper into, you know, what's going on and across across multiple years. Right. And I know we'll also talk about like out of school time in a, in a little bit as far as like just an entrepreneurial spirit of educators that they normally have um, naturally have. And then how, you know, how to promote that even even further. Uh, but then we also look at, you know, that's why we believe if they can leave school debt free. And that's why the Black Teacher Pipeline Fellowship is so important for us. It's not just, oh, come be a teacher, come be a teacher. We're also looking at black white wealth gap, home ownership. Uh, you know, uh, some people, when we first created the Center for Black Educated Development, they were like, well, why are you paying high school and college? Just ask for volunteers. You know, you can... we're like, no, we don't want volunteers. We want them to look at this as a job. And we're saying like, hey, if you love your community, you're interested to exploring what teaching, what leading a classroom looks like, 
and how it's the purest form of activism, that social justice that you're that you are so adamant about pursuing, then don't work at McDonald's and, and enterprise car rental. Come work in your community, right? And so that's uh, another thing. As we advocate for higher salaries, as we create this fellowship with UNCF so that they leave uh, debt free, and then find ways to raise money to have some type of like uh, black teacher endowment, right? Where they or black teacher trust, where there's money to support retention bonuses as they matriculate through, but also looking at where are you know what are the salary bands in that particular uh, school. Um, or in that district, rather, I should say, um, and then looking at all of that, you know, all together, right? And so and instead of just one thing, looking at all of it, um, you know, is, is I think part of our, uh, you know, part of our story, our conversations that we're having with, with, uh, with youth. And then lastly, we also just talk to them about, think of teaching as a 200, 220 day a year job. It's 365 days in a calendar. How else are you thinking about marketing the skills that you have? Um, and, and what would you like? Obviously, you want to spend time learning and growing, you know, outside of, you know, uh, school, right? You want to spend time making sure that you're taking care of yourself, right? That should, you know, be part of the hours. Like, how are you refilling your own cup? How are you uh, relaxing? How are you taking care of yourself mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, um, but then what else might you be interested in, in doing that contributing? Some are coaches, some are tutors, some create their own, um, you know, nonprofits, right? Like there are a lot of other ways. If we think about it, you know, more holistically, um, it may be a path. And that speaks to like the entrepreneurialism that you speak about a lot, you know, and, and that's what we talk about. Like think about your school years, 180 days. You think another 20 that you may go to professional development or, you know, pre post, you know, the classes or, you know, uh, teacher in service and things like that. There are other times and skills that you may want to develop where you can still, lead. it may be around policy, you know, and you, we have partners like Teach Plus and others who support teachers in, in leaning in on policy and, and, and um, doing that. It may be writing books, it may be authoring, it may be presenting, like there are a lot of other things that we also support them. Uh, but part of our fellowship, the BTP fellowship, is also like financial literacy, um, because we want to make sure as educators, if you start off making fifty thousand, what does that, what does that actually mean? Um, you know, what does it mean for the full year? What does it mean for all the other uh, things? And then one uh, one last piece I would say is uh, some of the folks who are thinking about I'm going to college and making a lot of money, what they're majoring in doesn't necessarily correlate with that. Right. You know, uh, and so we also try to just inform them, you know, the amount of people who've actually uh, became interested in teaching who were communications, psychology mm -hmm. majors, uh, poli sci majors, criminal justice majors and weren't interested in going to law school. Right. Business majors, but, you know, weren't really interested in, um, you know, going full blown into the business because they felt like, you know what, that's not the right place for me. I want to work in schools all of them weren't you know uh six figure type of, of roles and jobs that they were playing some of our the teachers that we came in they were doing tss work uh which is basically a behavior specialist who work with an individual child that someone a, a child psychologist said they can't manage themselves so they need someone to sit next to them all day um and what some of these young men a lot of them were young men but some sisters too what they realize is the teacher was asking them 
hey, can you help not just with that child, but can you help with these other couple children? Even though they were assigned, their client, they were case managing that one child. The teacher was saying, hey, what about these uh, two or three? Can you handle all of them? And then it, the, these youth were looking and they were like, they're watching the person leading the class and they're like, I can actually do that. They're, and they're asking me for so much help. I have better relationships with these students in here than the teacher. And then some of them started envisioning themselves leading a classroom, mm -hmm. right? And it wasn't a pay cut for what they were doing. It was actually a, a pay increase. And so, you know, there are a lot of different factors. So we just try to, you know, but I agree, like we, you know, uh, the salary for teachers should be raised and the salary for uh, effective teachers should be raised um, substantially. Mm -hmm. So you and I are both on Twitter, and uh, we're seeing some teachers who their hearts are in the right place, and mm -hmm. they really want to do the work. Right. What should non-teachers of color know about teaching Black children? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing they should recognize is that they probably did not have the, uh, if they went to a traditional program, they probably were not well-trained and developed to work uh, with black children. I think it starts off with a recognition of that, you know, all the don't see color, don't see, you know what I mean? Like, that means you're already putting the children at a deficit. Um, you know, you're already not seeing their full humanity, uh, even though you think you're doing something positive uh, by just erasing all of them. Cause you sure don't erase whiteness. You see, you, you see that, um, and we see all the research that shows you see whiteness. Um, but yet you want to um, erase the children and their experiences, as well as the system and how the system sees, uh, sees them. And if you ignore that, that means you are literally oiling the system, the, the, you know, the uh, wheels and the gears that grind uh, Black children's aspirations um, to dust. Um, and so I think, you know, recognizing, having the humility to recognize that, you know what, there are a lot of people, a lot of educators who are trained and developed to work in schools and systems, not necessarily to work with in communities and with children. Those are two different uh, paradigms to operate from. Um, I would also say, you know, uh, uh, our good friends, uh, Dr. Koswa Lassane is, is building on what people like Vanessa Soto Walker and, and, and Delpit and uh, Dr. GLB, Gloria Latson Billing have all, you know, kind of codified and, she, you know, she's working on uh, this idea of the Black teaching tradition. And so I would say for teachers who have the, you know, a mindset of curiosity, humility, servant leadership, uh, understanding, like, what is the Black teaching tradition and how can I learn from that? How can I incorporate that? How do, how do I learn, you know, how do I not just read and have a book club about other people's children? How do I actually internalize it? And how do we recognize it in how I'm building culture in my class and school? How, do, how would somebody recognize that I'm internalizing uh, you know, uh, other people's children's uh, principles in my unit map, my lesson plans, and, and just how things are, are operating? Um, and then I would also say, you know, really pushing and challenge themselves to asking students and families, you know, what should I start, stop and continue doing? How are you experiencing my leadership? It's easy to fix our lips to say, yeah, I'm anti-racist um, and Black Lives Matter. 
Yeah, but does it? Do students believe that? Do they experience that, that you deeply believe it? Because just like there's a saying that people should know your religion without you moving your lips. Well, students should know your mindset about how they feel without you moving your lips because this, you know, or without your bumper sticker. They should know it by how they experience your teaching, how they experience the culture, how they experience their relationship with you. That, that tells them more than anything, um, you know, what you really believe in. Because, you know, we can say whatever we want. Our actions will uh, betray what we really think, what our mindsets really are. I mean, what our beliefs about that child, that child uh, really are. Mm. So let's stay on this topic for a moment because there are people like Ron Clark who believe that dancing and call and response is the way to connect with Black children. What is your definition of culturally responsive teaching or developing a cultural pedagogy to meet the intellectual, social, and emotional needs of Black children? Yeah, you know, and and I I don't necessarily disparage folks who I I think the folks that I get up in arms about it think that that's the only way to connect with black children, that they don't look at black children as, uh, you know, diverse and creative and and funny and aspirational. And they don't see a multifaceted child. They see like, oh yeah, this is who all of you are. And this is the only way to connect with you. I can't connect with you with some intellectualism. I have to connect with you, um, you know, through, through bebop or so, you know what I mean? Like whatever it is, right? Like, and I think that's, that's I think that's dangerous. Um, I think it's limiting, um, not only limiting for the student, but it constricts the educator's mindset if they think that's the only way. I mean, I'm all for like, you know, finding creative ways to engage and, and uh, you know, uh, a friend of mine talks about like, hey, some students that he uh, works with, they engage in, in their sneakerheads. And so they engage in that and then others, but you know what? And maybe some that engage in robotics or f- philosophical questions and ideas in the cosmos, right? Like, you know, so I, I would just caution people to really check themselves and check their, their biases about it and seeing if they're flattening um, you know, black students. I think overall, you know, cultural responsiveness is really seeing themselves, you know, do you, how do you fully see them, those children? Um, what are the biases that you may have and how do you know that you're extracting them out of your, your uh, mindset, out of your lesson plans, out of your uh, questioning techniques, out of your disciplinary referrals? Um, so for me, cultural responsiveness is really centering the student's experience but that doesn't mean flattening the student's experience. Um, and how we look at cultural proficiency is that it's a continuum. Because an educator could be proficient, culturally proficient with one child and be culturally destructive to a child sitting right next to that child, the same race. You know, They could be culturally responsive to a class and then the next period be culturally destructive or, or, you know, uh, or blind, um, the very next class. Some may be competent one one uh, class period, you know, and then the next day uh, be more, you know, be proficient or competent depending, right? And so understanding that it's a continuum, understanding the level of humility um, that it takes to really be an effective educator, because it means it's not only reflecting, how did, how did I do? What could I have done differently? It's also being part of a feedback loop because we only reflect just in ourselves, just in our own heads, first people that we lie to is ourselves. And so we may fall into that trap where we're saying like, yeah, this is why people can say, 
I got a black friend, so I know I don't have this. Or I got a black husband or a wife, so I know I'm not uh, this. Or I, you know, like all of those kind of things, right? Which means like, you know what? They're not doing enough reflection, but they're also not doing enough kind of public learning. And that's where that feedback loop is. How are students experiencing me? How are my colleagues experiencing me? How are people who should be, you know, my partners, who I should approach as partners, um, with a servant leader orientation, how are they experiencing me? Like, and how do you know? Because a lot of folks make assumptions like, oh yeah, they're good. They, they love my class. They love, in the meantime, that ain't quite what they would say if they uh, had a uh, trusting relationship about what they actually ex experience. And so that curiosity, that level of humility, that uh, willingness to embrace, because everybody say they love feedback, right? But we know that's not really true. Most people don't like feedback. They like feedback that they, um, that, you know, promotes or supports their actions and, and their viewpoints. Um, being challenged about, you know what, I'm actually, don't feel like I'm, I'm able to perform my best in your class or in your school. Or, you know, what, I'm a colleague where I, I don't want to give you feedback because then you turn into a victim and you start saying like, I'm not racist, right? And so I can't give you feedback. Um, and so I, I think just as educators, that's absolutely critical for all educators. Um, and I, I would say outside of like, like black educational theorists and, and so forth, uh, people should really, all educators should really study uh, like folks like Ella Baker and how she led and look at their schools and classrooms. And, and what does, what is that type of, you know, framing? Suppose that was part of our pedagogical framework that Ella Baker style um, leadership, what would that look like um, as we were leading classroom schools and districts? That's all right, that's all right. People, y'all gonna learn today. Yeah. <laughs> gonna learn today. Yeah, may we all, what they say, you know, uh, our beloved prophet used to say, learn from the cradle to the grave, right? And so like, that's, that's part of our, you know, that's part of our work, um, learning from the cradle to the grave. And what does that mean? Um, the first, uh, you know, how often in our uh, book, it talks about reflecting. And this is for people who reflect. Uh, and what does that mean? First word, uh, you know, uh, uttered was ikra, read, right? So we're talking about reading, we're talking about reflecting, um, you know, all of those things, uh, you know, uh, and learning, putting that all together um, and doing it with humility, with courage, right? Because I could be humble and courageous at the same time. Like that's, you know, like I, I think that is absolutely critical for an educator to be humble and courageous simultaneously. Mm, that's all right. And now before we go, you and creating this center uh, channeled uh, in you the way to seek out other opportunities uh, to make an impact in the community beyond the four walls of the traditional classroom. Mm -hmm. And I know there are educators <clears throat> right now who, you know, whether they're still sort of dealing with what's happened over the past two years, mm. or they're teaching in a school where they're not being filled, they don't feel fulfilled, they don't feel honored, uh, or if someone has just gotten to the point to where they feel they've accomplished everything that they can within a traditional school system and there's more for them to do. What is your advice, your call to action for those 
teachers to be able to take their skills, their knowledge base, their experiences, their degrees, and they actually create opportunities outside of the system. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's really important. Um, you know, I think being, as uh, Jim Collins says, and it's uh, good to great, you know, being in the right seat on the right bus is absolutely mm-hmm. critical. Um, and I think, you know, knowing, you know, know thyself is like the first, you know, part, right, like of it. And I think sometimes is it, is it that you're ready to leave the classroom or are you ready to leave that classroom? You know, um, are you ready to leave education or are you ready to leave, quit that principal or that leadership team? Um, so I think one reflecting on that, you know, I, I, I had a student who uh, she's inter- she was uh, interested in being a teacher. She majored in education and her first experience in a school was so terrible. She was just like, oh, you know what? I'm leaving this profession. Um, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I just want you to at least think about like that experience may not actually be what teaching in a, in a community that supports you is. She went to another school and she's thriving, right? Because she was like, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm so glad that you, you know, but she was so frustrated. She just, you know, had that, you know, vision of like, oh, this is what this is all about. I'm out. Um, but she experienced it uh, differently somewhere else, right? And so I think, you know, the idea of leadership teams, what that, uh, you know, what that means, how that, uh, you know, support, is absolutely you know an important part of the uh you know outlook um and then also like what are your passions right like what are you like i'm you know even when my first grade uh, folks were telling me like oh you want to be a veterinarian what i realized is i don't want to be a veterinarian but i i do love nature right and so i i my brother father son helped me build a koi pond right because i don't want to be a veterinarian but yeah i appreciate nature so i have a corn snake uh, we have a rabbit, we have koi, we have honeybees, we have chickens and a rooster that I thought was a chicken when the person gave it to me, right? Like that's fulfilling a, a piece of me that I absolutely need. Another piece that I need is I need to be able to see the connection between educational justice and racial justice in my work, right? And so that's another piece that that helps drive me. Um, I love being a, uh, in school. I love being a principal. When the last school I was in, I was there for 11 years. And I tell people like, you know, if I didn't love what I was doing at the Center for Black Educated Development, I'd be absolutely miserable not being in the school, right? But I, I found a way to uh, fulfill me um, and, you know, in the way that I look at, at, at work, at the way that I look at uh, activism and, you know, like that is, that is my story. So finding your passion, finding your skill, finding, you know, where, what the need is in society, right? Like I you know, often talk to my students and, and my own children, like, hey, what questions do you want to answer? What problems do you want to solve? What do you want to create, build? What do you want to burn down? <laughs> you know, uh, all of that, not just who do you want to work for or what job do you want to have, right? You know, but like, what are you thinking about? Who do you want to hire, right? Suppose we started asking students like, you know, where do you want to work? But like, no, what's the type of people you want to hire? And what type of... Uh, system do you want them to be hired in like what you know what's your vision for uh you know what the world looks like um not just hey how do you fit in other people's vision (laughs) you know uh, i think sometimes that's what we're asking students um and they continue to be asked that but suppose we really start feeding into their entrepreneurial spirit that so many of them 
have already? And if they don't have it, how do we introduce it to them? All right. All right, brother Sharif. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure, Achi. My pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having. Usually, when you uh, make announcements, I'm like, oh, I know who would be a great vest. So I'm usually like trying to connect folks that I, uh, you know, think would just be really dope, uh, particularly on the topics. Um, so I'm I'm grateful to you know be able to be here, talk about uh, the center, talk about hashtag We Need Black Teachers, and uh, the uh, this National Black Teacher Pipeline that we're uh, you know helping to rebuild That's in community right. with others. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Doc, I interviewed Doctor. Simmons uh last week. Awesome. Awesome. My guy. That's my guy. You know, um, so can't wait to uh can't wait to listen to that one as well. All right, all right. Now, people, you know how I do this. This podcast episode is gonna be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Supercast Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible. I need you to subscribe and share with your network. And though I am on all major podcast platforms, I'm trying to grow on Apple Podcasts. So don't just subscribe, listen, and leave me some reviews and some stars because I'm trying to be found and I'm trying to get Oprah on the show because I want to know that we're doing nice. big things around here. Oh, I do want to in- interview Auntie Oprah for real. Talk about those billions. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Sharif el well, for coming you know what? Yes, sir. Uh, sorry. And I, I hope you come to, you know, every year we have a, a annual national Black teacher, um, Black male educator convening. I hope you uh, come and, you know, we can set up a room where you can do some, you know, some interviewing maybe of, of black men uh, who are leading classrooms and schools and um, including high school, college, as well as veteran um, educators. And so I think that would be kind of dope. So November awesome. 10th through the 12th here in Philadelphia, back in person. Okay. Um, hashtag BMEC 2022, Black Male Educators Convening. Um, we'd love to have you there um, and have you, you know, be able to to do your show um, and and interview some of the the guests who are the, and participants there as well. So awesome! We'll Inshallah. keep you posted. Yeah. Let me check out them personal days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tell your school to sponsor you. You know what I mean? That's one of the ways to help sustain folks. Make sure that they are find time in affinity spaces, and that's one. That's one of the many ways that uh, schools and school systems can invest. And their people making sure that not only do they have affinity spaces, but that they also have, uh, you know, decision making and autonomy in the affinity space, right? Like not just, oh, yeah, go there and talk. And but yeah, don't change anything, you know, uh, about it, right? Just here's this pizza. But no, we do that anyway, in our own community, in the barbershop, in our homes, dining room tables, in the car ride, no affinity spaces where we can actually make changes and, and lead uh, in the way that we know, um, things need to be led in this educational ecosystem so thanks again for having me you're welcome anytime anytime now people hey thank you for checking out my boy my brother sharif el mecky for coming going and driving so many gms and for you for checking out another episode of the dr will show as always people invest in you edu peace